Good morning, Story. How y'all doing? Good. It's good to see you. It's good to be with you. If you don't know who I am, my name is David, and uh, the Story Church is actually part of a greater network of churches here in Grand Rapids called the Zero Collective, and one of my roles is I get to bounce around and help the lead pastors at each one of those uh, by giving them a relief Sunday so that they don't have to preach one, but I get to be here and be with you, and I always look forward to it. I actually live in Sparta. This is the closest church in the Zero Collective to where I live, so I'm like, yeah, like five-minute drive, which is awesome. So good to be with you. Um, As you know, right now, like, this is kind of like the start of the launch pad for wedding season. You know what I'm talking about? Like springtime, right? A lot of people start getting engaged right around now, but also a lot of weddings start rolling out. And so it made me think a couple years ago, I had a cousin get married and we have a large extended family. So we're not super close to everybody in the family. You know what I mean? But uh, what we did is we drove down all the way from Michigan to central Illinois to attend this wedding. And think about this, right? If you're not particularly close with the bride or groom that's getting married, uh, pretty much everything that becomes somewhat burdensome or less than ideal uh, becomes a crisis pretty quickly. So it's like the longer the drive, the more frustrated we get, our air conditioner broke on the way down, etc. Well, here's the thing. In central Illinois, um, this particular bride decided she wanted an outdoor wedding, and so she chose the state conservation area, which pictures look great, but if you're in person, it's what? Awful. It is awful if you are a guest, right? Because it's hot. It probably had 130% humidity. I mean, you just walk around. You're like, it's just, am I swimming or am I walking? Like, it's just profuse. People are sweating. I'm looking at all my family members. A lot of my family, too, they're like larger human beings, which means we sweat profusely. So I'm, I'm looking at grandparents. I'm looking at uncles and aunts. I'm looking at cousins, right? We're all just, we're, we're bleeding sweat through our clothes, and it's miserable. Like, it is not a good experience at all. And so my grandma, actually, this is horrible, right? My grandma passed out at my wedding because of heat. So this one, they're like, we're going to be on top of that. So she has a portable air conditioner that, like, she's got a fanfare walking around, like, holding this, keeping her cool. Like, this is how miserable this wedding was. Um, But this is my favorite part, right? So after the wedding, we're all super sweaty. There's no air conditioning. There's no nothing. After the wedding, the next day, my cousin gets on social media, and she, she writes, this comment, which I just couldn't help but love. It says this, best day of my life, perfect weather and perfect groom. I didn't like that comment. I didn't. In fact, nobody at that wedding, I think, liked that comment, particularly for the perfect weather statement. It was not perfect weather, right? It looks great in the photos, but it was miserable. So here's why I tell you this story, right? Just to tee it up, kind of have some fun with you, uh, is this. It's in this statement. Let me put this up. Uh, the best opportunity that we have or your greatest opportunity to put true joy on display is when things actually aren't well. So I want you to think about this from her perspective, right? She knows it's hot. She knows it's humid. She knows guests aren't doing awesome. But the joy that she has about getting married overpowers everything else that could go wrong over all other circumstances. I'm here to tell you today that your greatest opportunity to put true joy, to put true joy on display is when things are not well. Doesn't that seem counterintuitive? Doesn't that seem like the opposite of what you would expect, right? Isn't it true? Like most of us probably operate our lives like my best opportunity to put joy on display is when things get worked out, when things get redeemed, when things are good, when the the diagnosis comes back and it's positive, right? Or I get a bonus at the end of the year, or my family is just getting along all the time, right? Most of us, we go, yeah, it, it makes sense that I can put true joy on display when everything is perfect, 
And I'm here to tell you that I think the opposite is actually true. The, the greatest opportunity that every single one of us has, especially as believers in Jesus, our greatest opportunity to put true joy on display is when things aren't well. So we have an anchor passage in the series that we've been in right now. The anchor passage is the 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought. We take captive every thought. This has been a series all about the mind. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So today, the thought pattern that we're looking at is joy. That where does joy actually come from? What does it look like to actually live out of a place of joy? How do you find it? How do you implement it? How do you apply it to your life? How do you live in a way that exudes joy? So to do that, we're going to open up. If you have a Bible, open it up. I'd love for you to read with me. Uh, It's Acts chapter 16. We're going to be looking at two guys that actually get in prison named Paul and Silas. So Paul, uh, if you've been around church for a while or maybe you haven't, Paul wrote like half of our New Testament. So Paul was an apostle. Uh, He was actually opposed to Christianity. He was opposed to the Christian movement. And Jesus woke him up in a pretty profound way, metaphorically speaking. He was actually traveling from one city to another. And it says like this voice from heaven heaven spoke, it knocked him off the horse that he was on. And Jesus said, Saul, 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 because his name was Saul first. He said, why are you persecuting me? And he has this pretty incredible transformation of Paul actually encountering and meeting the person of Jesus. And it changed his life so much so that he became an ambassador for the movement he was trying to wipe out. So Paul, this guy Paul now, is traveling throughout the region. He's preaching. He's leading people to a knowledge of that same person, Jesus, who he has now given his life to. And this is what happens in Acts chapter 16, verse 22. It says, The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates, right? The guys that are in charge, the guys that are ruling, the guys who actually have authority, the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods, not the crowd, Paul and Silas. So uh, catch this. This is a mob. This is a mob. This is a riot that is happening from within the city, from within the context that Paul and Silas are in, and they put a whooping on them, and they have the people in authority against them. So they order them, strip them, and beat them after they had been, catch this word, severely flogged. Not just like, okay, get a couple good punches in, and then we're good. After they had been severely flogged, as in like, hey, if we let this go on much further, we might get in trouble. After they've been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. They were taken to a hospital. They weren't ushered into a doctor's office. They they weren't taken to some place where they could heal. They were taken to prison. So in prison, right, and the jailer, go ahead and go back, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them, it just gets worse, in the inner cell, right? Okay, then you guys get solitary confinement. We're going to put you in the, in the depths, on the inside, in the center of this jail, in the inner cell, and he fastened their feet to the stocks, I mean, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. The circumstances are absolutely horrible. So now here they are, they're in jail. They've been rescued sort of from their beaters, right? From those who just put a whooping on them so that now they can bleed in private 
or at least under supervision. What an opportunity to put joy on display, right? Wouldn't that be going through your mind? Man, looking around, like, who can I show how, how excited and joyful and happy I am, right? Anybody else, would you just be angry? That's usually my default first one, right? I just run hot, right? It's just, I'm, I'm zero to 100. After all of that, I would have blown a gasket. Anybody else? Like, here you are. You're in the middle. I mean, the, the justice piece starts getting mad, right? My inner thought life. I start thinking, like, man, what am I going to do when I get out of this place? And, what, man, what should have happened? And these people and that thing, right? You just start running. That's not what happens to Paul and Silas. And that's, that's why we have this text, this text chosen for you today. Uh, if their greatest opportunity to put joy on display when things aren't well, then they, they honestly have the perfect opportunity because not just they know that things aren't well, everybody around them knows things aren't well if your names are Paul or Silas. Your life's horrible. Horrible. You've been made a public spectacle of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. We're going to whoop you, we're going to beat you, and we're going to put you in a place where you are stripped of everything that gives you power or control or authority. We're going to make your life so miserable that nobody will want what you are preaching. What an opportunity that they have. Here's what they do. It says, about midnight. midnight, like we're talking middle of the night, after the worst day of your life, after the worst beating, after your body's sore, right? As your sores, they haven't even scabbed over yet. I mean, you're just at your worst. About midnight that night, Paul and Silas were doing two things, praying and singing hymns to God. And this is such a key phrase here, right here. And the other pris prisoners were, say it with me, listening. They're listening to them. Would you be listening? What would you be listening for? I mean, put, put yourself like you're, you're the cell next to them, right? You're there because a check bounced, right? Or, or you're there because you got a parking ticket that you never paid. Or you're, you're there because some kind of trivial, whatever, you ended up in the night in jail. But you're looking at these guys who are probably carried in because of how beaten they are, put in the inner cell, feet shackled, hands shackled. I mean, they're, and here it, all, it is now midnight. You're ready to go to bed because your mild inconvenience of a day pales in comparison to what they're going through. And now you're hearing them at midnight and they're praying and singing. What is going through your mind? Here's my question. Are these guys legit? Are they for real right now? Like, is this a show? Are, are they just trying to give the impression like everything's fine, but like we can see everything's not fine. Like you're, you're bleeding in a lot of different places right now. Like everybody's listening to them. And, and for this reason, because there is something within that jail and within that cell and within these two men that circumstances say should not exist there. And that's confusing. You're looking at them and you're seeing there's like hope in a place that there shouldn't be hope. There's peace in a place that shouldn't be peace. There's singing and worship and prayer in places where it probably shouldn't be. As we've talked about in this series, like the brain, we've looked at like the actual like physical makeup of the brain. There's two significant pieces here uh, that I want to talk about. One is the amygdala. The other one is the prefrontal cortex. So science people in the room, brain people in the room, maybe just smart people in the room. Do you, how many of you know the difference between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex? 
right? You don't have to be ashamed if you know it. Okay, nobody. All right. I don't believe any of you. I think there's people in here that know. Here's the amygdala. The amygdala is the emotion part of your brain. That's when you experience emotions. I have a three-year-old right now. He only operates out of the amygdala, right? Everything. It's a crisis. It doesn't matter if it's cereal, right? Or if he stubs his toe, whatever. Everything's an emotional display, an emotional breakdown, right? The amygdala is where emotions are processed, it's the emotions that happen in our brain that, that the amygdala says, this is what you need to do right now. And my three-year-old slump down and, you know, freak out. Whatever. The amygdala, though, is also what would be firing if you're Paul and Silas in this situation. All of the emotions, all of the frustration, all of the anger, all of the pain, all of the hurt. The amygdala would be going, but here's the difference. The prefrontal cortex, if it's not emotion, what would it be? Anybody? Logic. It's the reasoning part of your brain that, that can say, okay, I know I, I feel one way, right? My, my amygdala is saying one thing, but the prefrontal cortex on the opposite side is, is trying to, to make sense of it. It's trying to reason with it. It's trying to, to figure out the equation. It's trying to define it. It's trying to understand in a way that's separate from emotion. Here's why I think all of the other prisoners in that place were listening and paying attention is what they were seeing doesn't make sense on the amygdala side or on the prefrontal cortex side. Doesn't make sense. On the amygdala side, it should create these horrible negative emotions, and that's not what they see. On the prefrontal cortex side, logically, here's what they should be doing, right? They should be mad. They should be upset. They should be groaning and saying, ow, but that's not what they're seeing. So our brains, the way our brains are wired... The amygdala, the prefrontal cortex, everybody around is watching, trying to figure out why doesn't this compute? There is something on display here that should not be on display. Which begs this question. What if joy doesn't come from your amygdala or your prefrontal cortex? What if true joy comes from a place that's far deeper than just your mind? What if it comes from your heart? As I shared part of Paul's story with you, this actually makes sense. Paul had an encounter with Jesus that changed his life. It changed his mind, but most importantly, it changed his heart. So incredibly so. Jesus even talks about when, when you have a relationship with him, it, it, what he gifts you, like, like the, the reaction to him taking up residence, the byproduct is joy. Here's what he says, John chapter 16. I'll quote Jesus here. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and say it with me. Your joy will be complete. Jesus is saying, ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. As in when Jesus enters the equation, you now have the ability to have a complete type of joy. Jesus is describing himself. Paul is evidence of it. This is John 17. Let's read the next one. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of joy. The full measure, not partial, not half in, half out, not a percentage, not a fraction, not, not a modest amount of joy, but the full measure of joy within them. Jesus has said to his disciples, he said it a number of different times, that when I enter a person's heart, I can bring what nobody else can bring, and that's joy. 
It's love, it's peace, it's forgiveness. All of these things, they're so closely connected to one another. This is why all the other prisoners in the prison, in the jail, are watching and listening and paying attention because these two men have joy in a place where joy should not be. What an opportunity for Paul and Silas. Have you ever been in a situation where you experienced joy where it should not be? Kyle just got back from Guatemala last week, and uh, this is part of what seeded this. I I listened to him last week, and I think it was him that said, uh, their guide in Guatemala said, look for hope in places that hope should not be. And they went to different parts and different areas of brokenness within Guatemala. And, And when you're looking for it, isn't it true? Like oftentimes you can find it. You can find what you're looking for. It brought me back to the first time that I traveled overseas. I was in high school, and uh, I actually went to Haiti. So if you remember a few years back, there was like a horrible earthquake that just brought Haiti to its knees. So here I am. This is my first international trip. I've never been outside of our country. Never really had a desire to go outside of our country either. And here I am. I I go through uh, customs in Haiti in a hangar because their airport was so obliterated by this earthquake. I go through it. Um, We get in a box truck and we travel in this like open air box truck for three hours through Haiti, through this country of Haiti. And it is nothing but poverty, 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 poverty to a level that like I've never experienced. People are bathing in the street. Kids are walking around naked. Like people don't have food. People don't have clothes. People don't have water. People don't have sewer systems. I mean, there's just, it, it, it was horrible. And and here's what bugged me so much about Haiti is I I felt like I was one of the prisoners in the Paul and Silas story. I'm looking around and the thing that couldn't compute is I was also interacting with the most joyful people I had ever met in my entire life. Figure that one out. Like I'm interacting with people who have a joy so deeply rooted in them. We, we got to spend time with a bunch of believers, a bunch of people who live in Haiti, who've grown up in Haiti, who Haiti is all that they know. Some of them have been outside and come back, but, but we're with a, a bunch of believers who have a relationship with Jesus and their circumstances are so dire and so horrible and so disgusting. And yet their joy, which seems incompatible, actually overpowers all of their circumstances. And so here I am, right? A rich American. I didn't know I was rich. I was in high school. I didn't know I was rich until I was there. And I'm interacting with all of these people and I'm discovering they have something that I don't have. They have something that I want. They have something our world wants. They have something our country wants. They have something, they have something our families want, our marriages want, something that we want. They had this joy that was so real and so true and so powerful, and it was on display in the worst of circumstances. And I came back, and I remember the wrestling when I came back from Haiti, like, this still doesn't make sense to me. And it didn't make sense for this reason. I had pegged my joy to circumstances, rather than a person whose name is Jesus. When you peg your joy to circumstances, your joy will fluctuate in and out given how good or bad those circumstances may be. 
It'll fluctuate based on diagnoses. It'll fluctuate based on other relationships. It'll fluctuate based on your bank account, fluctuate based on your job, based on how you feel. It'll fluctuate because of a thousand different things. But if you have your joy that is staked and pegged to the person of Jesus, your joy will do nothing but increase over the course of your life, regardless of your circumstances. In fact, so much so that the world will be looking at you when things are horrible, when things don't make sense, when, when you have a child that runs away, when you get the bad diagnosis, when you lose your job, when all of these other things that our world and our country stakes their joy to, which then seems the impossible rat race to ever achieve, when we don't get what the world says you need for joy, yet you have it, you will raise so many questions in the eyes of so many other people. And they'll ask the same question that I asked in Haiti, that the prisoners asked in this jail cell. But the same question is this, how do I get that? Do I have access to that? There's something different that I'm seeing in you that I so desperately want. Here's what Philippians chapter 4 verse 4 says. Paul is writing this in prison to the same group of people that he was preaching to when he was arrested. And he says this, rejoice in the Lord. Say it with me. Always. We could just stop right there. How in the world are we supposed to do that? How are we supposed to rejoice always? It seems possible when things are great, and it seems impossible when the bottom falls out. As he's writing to the people in prison, right? Like, like he's got handcuffs on, or he's got his foot shackles on, or he's in a cell by himself, or he's hungry, or he's bleeding. He's in the cell, arrested, freedom stripped, and he says this to the people that he was preaching to when he got arrested. Rejoice in the Lord always. And then just, uh, you know, you got to think this is funny, right? Like he's in there in the cell going, I think they're going to skip over that. So I'm going to say it again. I will say it again. Rejoice. And he pounds it and he hits it and he reiterates it over and over and over and over and over. And he says this, rejoice, let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. How many of you, when you read the word gentleness, you're like, I don't understand why gentleness is now a part of this equation. Is that anybody else? Right? Like I'm, I'm reading it and I'm studying it going, man, we're building, Paul, we're building. And then gentleness seems like in prison, you could have figured out a different word that would complement that well. So I started digging, and here's why he uses the word gentleness, is it doesn't mean what most you and I would peg gentleness to. As I started defining gentleness, um, according to like the original language, one of the things that it says is this, an unwillingness to litigate or contend. That was the word choice that he used. So, so it, it, it was a word that had multiple meanings in this language, but one of them was an unwillingness to litigate. What, what does that mean? Paul w was like a lawyer. Like Paul was brilliant. He, he ran with a very different type of crowd. When he uses this word, here's what we would use, or here's how we might define it today, is this, non-negotiable. Non-negotiable. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness, let, let this non-negotiableness of joy be evident to everybody. That it's not pegged to circumstances. It's not pegged to outcomes. It's not pegged to positivity. It, it is not litigatable, undisputable, unchangeable. Like it's pegged to something that is different. This is why scholars should, they're like gentleness, man, of all the words that it's hard to capture, but like, so gentleness, right? Your gentleness, because, because it's pegged to something, you're not out making war, you're not out fighting, you're not out contending, but, but the joy that you have isn't negotiable. It, it's just, it just is. It just comes from a place that is so deep, that is so different, that is not pegged to circumstances so that it might be evident to everyone. One of the scholars wrote this, it describes a person who is really free to let go of his anxieties and all the things that cause him stress because he knows that the Lord will take up his cause. Isn't that cool? Let me just time out for a second. That's cool. It's a person that can be so free from anxiety, free from stress, free from depression, free from even sadness, who, who can be free because they know that they've released it to their heavenly father who says, I'll pick that up for you. What joy comes from having your heavenly father step in on your behalf? Joy is a byproduct. What Paul is writing to the same group of people that watched him get hauled away, that watched him get beat, that watched him get whooped on, that same group of people, Paul is saying to them, put it on display for everybody. For this reason, your greatest opportunity to put true joy on display is when things aren't well. People are listening. They're listening to the words you speak to the comments you write on social media, to lunch conversations you have at work, to the way that you talk to your spouse or significant other or kids, the life you live at home, in your neighborhood. People are listening. And I think people's attention to us skyrockets when things aren't well. We have an opportunity to really put true joy on display when things aren't well for the purposes of the gospel, of the kingdom, of the person of Jesus. So I, I was listening to a, a podcast this last week and, and they said this, I, I want to maybe rephrase or re, repurpose the way that many of us see trials or hard circumstances or hardships. Uh, he said this, tests have two purposes. So if you're a teacher, right, or, or if you went to higher education, college, high school, I mean, whatever, it, tests actually had two purposes. And, and we all know this, but maybe we've never defined this. The two purposes are this, to show you what you have and to show you what you don't. That's why a teacher would administer a test. I'm going to give you this test because I want to know what you know, and then I also want to know what you don't know. So re repurpose this or reposition this from the lens of joy. Tests and trials reveal the joy that is actually there or the joy that is absent. 
I'll say it again. Tests, trials, negative circumstances, bad diagnoses, all of this. This will actually show us when, think, when the bottom falls out, it will show you what your joy is actually pegged to. Do you have it? Do you possess it? Does it own you? Does it erupt out of you? Is it core and central to your relationship with Jesus so much so that, that regardless of circumstances, it's always on display for others? Or when the bottom falls out and joy disappears, do you realize the lack of joy that you had the entire time? Tests have two purposes. So our greatest missional opportunity is to share the gospel when the wheels fall off. When the diagnosis is not good, when your kids run from the Lord, when you're struggling financially, or when you feel like you're just not going to make it through. That maybe, just maybe at that opportunity, God would like to give you a gift called joy. Because it would be this thing that could exist in a place where it should not exist. Here's my giant question, right? How do we get that? How do you get joy when you're in the infertility clinic looking around at everybody else? How do you get joy when you're like, man, all of us desire this but aren't getting it? How do you get joy when you're in the doctor's office and you're looking around at all the other patients that have been diagnosed with something similar for which there is no cure? How do you find joy when you're going to the courthouse to, again, fight for custody of your kids? Or you're fighting over stuff because the divorce is getting messier and messier and messier. How do you find joy when you're laid off and, and you are already month to month, paycheck to paycheck? How do you find joy when your kid, when you're holding on to so much hope and then they make a decision that seems to propel them in the opposite direction of a walk and a relationship with Jesus? How do you find joy in all of those situations. I'm happy to tell you it's not as complicated as maybe we might think it is. I think it's buried in the text. Paul and Silas, as they're sitting in the jail cell, as their feet are in the stocks, as they're all alone, as it's dark, as they're bleeding with each other, they do two things. They pray and they worship. Joy is a gift that can only come from Jesus. And the decision that Paul and Silas actually make is they say, instead of running from God in this situation, I'm going to run to him. And I'm going to ask, Lord, I don't feel like worshiping. I don't feel like praying. I don't feel like talking to you. I don't want to sit next to you. I don't want a close relationship with you right now. In fact, the thing I want more than anything, God, is just for you to back off. Paul and Silas, in their worst moment, make a decision to move towards the person of Jesus, and joy is the byproduct. And it's put on display for all to see. Here's what happens if I read the, the rest of the story. It says this in verse 26. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken and all of the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Pause. What if that's also a metaphor for what happens spiritually in that space? 
What if as everybody else looks at Paul and Silas and they're listening, it was shaking the foundations of a superficial joy that God intended to break so that true joy, true, true freedom could actually erupt in the place and that actually that could be what breaks the chains off of everyone. That's what could open the prison doors At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? How do we get to a salvation conversation? Because it turns out it wasn't just other prisoners that were listening to Paul and Silas as they're praying and worshiping in their worst moment. It was also the authority figure presiding. And he comes and humbles himself, submits himself to Paul and Silas and says, you have something that I don't have. How can I be saved? He's not just talking about joy now. Now he's talking about a relationship with Jesus. How can I be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, we're still in the middle of the night. Circumstances haven't had a chance to get better yet. It's still in the dark, still in the pain, still in the brokenness, still in the worst of the worst. And yet, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all of his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them. He was filled with, guess what the word is? Joy. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole household. Wow. What a story. So let me, as we close with this, as the band comes back up, Kyle mentioned it right during his host spot too. I don't know what you came in with today. I don't know what you what you're carrying right now. I don't, I don't know what maybe you've pegged your joy to. But if it's anything other than the person of Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity right now. In fact, in studying for this, here, here's one thing that I found. It was, in a, in, um, it was this quote by a woman named Caroline Leaf. She said, 12 minutes of daily focused prayer over an eight-week period can change the brain to such an extent that it can be measured on a brain scan. This type of prayer seems to increase activity in the brain areas associated with social interaction, compassion, and sensitivity to others. It also increases frontal lobe activity as focus and intentionality increase. If you commit yourself to prayer, or if you commit yourself to worship, if you commit yourself to time and meditation with the Lord, it will actually change your brain. Which is exactly what we've said the entire time. Joy is actually a byproduct of a relationship with Jesus. So as we step into a time uh, just together here, here, here's my encouragement. 
whatever you came in with today, whatever you're carrying, whatever you're longing for, whatever you've pegged your joy to, here's my invitation to you, is that would you choose to worship and would you choose to pray and would you choose to sit with the Lord today and every day this week? Would you choose to be intentional and move toward Him? Because it's in that that joy is a byproduct. You can't achieve it on your own. You can't fix it on your own. You can't solve it. You can't undo it. But you can run to the person of Jesus in two very easy ways. Our prayer, that's just talking and listening to God. So often all we do is we fill the space with talking. Maybe prayer time for you needs to shift and you need to not just talk, but then sit and say, God, what would you speak to me? It might change everything. Or worship, instead of pegging worship, pegging our joy, pegging our praise to our Heavenly Father when things are good, when we say, you know what, God, things are horrible. Things aren't well. I'm struggling. I'm hurting. I'm going through things that nobody else sees. Man, all I've wanted is this, or I'm still carrying this, or this diagnosis. Here's what I'm afraid of. But you know what, God, Here, I'm, I'm going to decide, yes, I will. I will give it to you. I will come to you because only you can give me what I'm after. So let me pray for us and then we'll dive in. God, I just pray that you would meet us right now. Meet us in this space. Meet us in this season of life. Meet us here in this church. God, this, there's so much at stake for us to get this right because the world is watching us. The community is watching this church. People at work or people in school or people, classmates or students or neighbors, they're all watching this group of people. And what I pray right now, God, is through your Holy Spirit that you would put joy on display through them. That you would make a powerful and tangible and impactful difference in their lives because of the Holy Spirit, because of what you are doing and cultivating in their hearts. So we pray right now, God, that despite the brokenness, despite the pain, despite our circumstances, that we would peg our joy to you, that we would choose to worship you, that we would choose to pray to you, that we would choose to listen to you. And I pray, God, that you would usher us into the joy that only comes from a relationship with you, the joy that will last forever. So we love you. We're grateful for you. We just pray all of this in Jesus' precious and powerful and mighty name. Everybody said together, amen.